Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And welcome, everybody, to the Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. Hope all is well. September means October is next. And the last time I checked the way a calendar works... If it's September now and then comes October, I believe, and someone's going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just the news. So we're going to, we're going to dig in and correct, but I believe after, after October is November, someone will, you know, I'll Google it later. Uh, and in November comes, oh, that's right. The election, Joe Biden or Baseman Biden, as many people are calling him, uh, versus Donald Trump. And believe me, he's got a lot of names that a lot of people call him as well. Uh, that is 50 days or so away. And boy, uh, I don't know about you, but I am locked and loaded uh, on Excedrin. It's the extra strength variety. Uh, so looking forward to going down the home stretch here uh, as I try to get my sanity back uh, after this election. On the podcast today, uh, you may have heard of her. Um, let, let me here, here you go. Ready? Sarah Sanders. That's right. I'm sorry. My bad. Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Let's do the whole uh, name, the whole enchilada. She'll be on the podcast today. She's got a new book out uh, that we will discuss. And boy, I tell you what, in this book, uh, she talks about quite a bit, including a near-death experience, uh, literally uh, in a car accident in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. She'll uh, explain all about that. And also about all of the harassment that she received, uh, women spitting in her uh, face and uh, the, the, her husband uh, being subjected to all of uh, the, the ridicule and harassment as well. And also she gets into things that you just don't hear about often when you think of Sarah Sanders. Of course, you think about the media and they like to call her a liar and all that. Look, uh, she suffered from postpartum depression. She will talk about that on the podcast today. So a very different look at Sarah Sanders. Hope you can uh, join me for the rest of the podcast and not like tune out and eat some Fig Newtons and go on Roku and watch something else. No, can, can you give me 30 minutes? That's all I'm asking. I mean, maybe you're in your car listening to this, which by the way, don't eat Fig Newtons and drive. Very, very dangerous for your health. I've tried it and it almost didn't end up well, uh, don't forget on the justthenews.com, uh, how do I say this? The network, let's call it that, right? The justthenews.com network. You got Cheryl Atkinson podcast, John Solomon, uh, Scott Rasmussen, and yours truly. That's right. That's how I like to um, refer to myself. Yours truly. I go around uh, referring to myself that way. My wife says, stop, go take out the garbage. And that kind of ends the conversation. All right. Back in a moment with Sarah Huckabee Sanders here on the Pods on the Street. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
And welcome back, everybody, to the Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. Time now for my interview with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She's out with a new book called Speaking for Myself, Faith, Freedom, and the Fight of Our Lives Inside the Trump White House. Boy, she just goes through it all, talks about Scaramucci, you know, the mooch, uh, talks about John Bolton, uh, talks about being at this uh, table with Prince Charles uh, and Donald Trump in the UK. I mean, there's a lot... Uh, talks about uh, H.R. McMaster, uh, Rex Tillerson. I mean, it's all in there. Uh, I thought what was really interesting is this story she talks about where she's explaining to the president that she's leaving the White House and he literally leaves the room. <laughs> Wait till you hear what this is all about as to why he left the room. It's all part of my interview with Sarah Huckabee Sanders here on the Pod's Honest Truth. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, thanks for joining me here. Really appreciate it. Good to see you again. Great to see you, David. Always a pleasure to uh, get to be on with you. Well, talk to me about writing this book. Maybe somewhat of a cathartic experience for you, I would think. You know, this idea that you had a kind of, you wrestled through a lot as White House press secretary. What was it like, the experience of writing the book? You know, I actually really loved writing the book. In part, um, I think it was part therapy session, but also part like traveling down memory lane, which I really enjoyed. Uh, the honest part of my story is that I loved my time at the White House um, and I had a pretty incredible childhood and I got the chance to write about those moments, things that were important to me. And it's really incredible to see all of your life come together in a book. And so I hope people will enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it and frankly living it. Right, for sure. Sarah, there's so much to unpack here. Let, let's start with some of, um, you know, you face so much criticism. Uh, from the media, from your liberal critics, and you, you detail a lot of it. Um, I, I was struck by some of the examples you gave about some of the harassment that you received and, uh, you know, Brian even. I mean, you know, for example, you talked about someone, you know, spitting uh, at you and, and just all the derogatory stuff. And then Brian not being invited to a fantasy football league anymore that he was in for a while. And just, just all of this type of stuff. I mean, what was that part of it like for you? And how did you kind of deal with a lot of that? You know, in the moment, it was certainly very difficult. Um, and as a parent, your mind is constantly like you want to protect your kids and um, you want them to realize that that's not how you're supposed to treat other people. So I try to use those as, as teaching moments. But I think the biggest thing is that it was so surprising that nothing was off limits. Nothing was out of bounds for the people who didn't like the president. Um, and, you know, their whole mantra is all about tolerance as long as you agree with them. And because I didn't agree with them on policy and I was a supporter and a very vocal supporter of the president, I was fair game and everything about me was fair game. Everything from my appearance, my weight, my makeup, my fitness to be a parent. Um, and so that was hard to take all that in um, when the focus, you know, I don't have any problem with people disagreeing with my politics, but to, to attack me so personally was, was certainly challenging. And one of the reasons I'm so thankful that I have such a deep faith, because if I didn't, I don't know that I would have been able to do that for as long as I was. I wasn't looking for anybody else to define me. I knew who I was. I knew that God had created me for a purpose. And that gave me the confidence I needed to go in and face every day. Yeah, on that faith uh, element that you talk about, it's more than an element. It's it's it defines you. Um, 
the Jesus Calling devotional, how important was that as you, as you maneuvered? You, you referenced the Jesus Calling devotional quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's still something I read every day. Uh, every morning, I usually start and close my day with the Jesus Calling devotional. And in part, particularly that very first briefing um, where I just couldn't seem to quite settle my nerves. Um, mm -hmm. I knew that there was a lot on the line for this briefing, and I really felt um, I needed to deliver in this moment. But I, there was just so much coming at me, and I just needed to settle my mind. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to take a second. Somebody had left a leather-bound copy of it um, in the office. I grabbed it. I went into the other room, and I read it. And immediately, I just was kind of like, I'm at peace. This is either it's going to, I'm either going to be great or I'm going to be terrible, but I'm as ready <laughs> as I'm going to be. And I felt calm and just ready to go in. And so um, from that day forward, it became the very last thing I did before I went in uh, to the briefing. And even now I have it on my phone and mm -hmm. if I'm getting ready to give a speech or an interview, I'll look down um, and do a, a last little read through um, mm -hmm. before some of those big moments just to kind of center myself and remind me what's important and why I'm there. Yeah. You paint a different picture of President Trump that we hear in the media, obviously. Uh, you know the man. Uh, he gave you uh, a great opportunity and you're thankful for that, I know. Uh, talk to me a little bit about working for him because you definitely get the sense in the book that, look, I, uh, he, he can be, I like to sometimes call him the, the, uh, the human etch-a-sketch, you know, it, it, it can kind of go this way and that way in a little different ways, but you have to be ready for that. And how did you kind of deal with that? Uh, and then I want to ask you a follow-up question about some other things about him, but tell me about that part of it. You know, certainly, um, like everyone, <laughs> the president isn't perfect and he's not always going to be easy to work with. But the thing that I knew every single day was that the president loved this country and was willing to fight for it, um, even if he had to fight alone. And I think that was one of my biggest takeaways from the president. And I genuinely loved being around him. He has a huge personality, as you know, David. He's yeah. very fun, he's very engaging, he's a great storyteller. And um, I genuinely just enjoyed his company and I learned a lot from him. And uh, I think if I'm up in a negotiation, I'm much better prepared having worked for President Trump now. But his love of country and his willingness to fight for America and not to apologize for America was something that I loved about the president. And he, he has a big heart. He doesn't always love to show it. But I got to see that in so many instances um, and behind the scenes moments where he showed real kindness when he didn't have to. Um, and certainly even um, just compassion in moments that I think people would find to be unexpected. Yeah, I no noticed one of those stories you, you actually mentioned about being at the table with Prince Charles and President Trump, and he didn't have to do that. I mean, he could have picked Mnuchin, he could have picked a lot of different people, but he, he went with you, and it, you mentioned that, that that really spoke volumes to you. He could, he could have put anybody at his table um, at the United States Reciprocal Dinner when we were in the UK for the state visit. And the president um, didn't just put me at the table, but set me directly next to Prince Charles, um, which for most people is a pretty incredible experience, yeah. myself included. And um, I was honored that he was willing to 
trust me enough to be, you know, the representative to sit next to Prince Charles at that, at that dinner and in that moment. And um, it was little things like that that he did to recognize and to support the people um, on his team and that it worked for him. You know, one of the most, I mean, there, there are quite a few touching moments in the book. One of them to me was that time uh, when you walk in and you have this conversation with the president saying you're leaving of the White House and, and you're there in the Oval Office, kind of in the back, uh, I guess, uh, uh, dining room area. And <laughs> for a moment, I kind of laughed because like you're telling him you're leaving and then he like leaves the room, you're saying, and comes back with, with uh, something to comfort you with and uh, some Kleenex there. And I, I just thought that, that said a lot about, about him. Yeah, here I was pouring my heart out from the second I walked in, I think he knew um, and I looked at him and I, I just started crying and I'm not, not just like tearing up, like actual crying. Yeah. And so here I am sitting there crying my eyes out to the president of the United States and he gets up and walks out of the room and I'm like, are you kidding? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally bawling and you leave, but he quickly he rushes out of the room, comes right back and hands me a Kleenex and says, don't worry, Sarah, it's going to be okay. And wow. it was just a really, um, I think, special moment, at least for me and meant a lot that, you know, he, again, he showed kind of that caring side of him that you don't always get to see um, and certainly will never hear about in most of the mainstream media. I want to talk about a couple other emotional incidents in the book or stories that you relate. I mean, technically, you and I might not even be doing the Zoom call if something didn't happen uh, back in your life. I mean, you might not even be here uh, as it relates to that car accident that you had and the angels that you heard in the pickup truck. I thought that was a, a, just a wonderful story, but, but a, a story nonetheless that, that ha very harrowing. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And uh, just clearly God had you here for a purpose. So, and that story really comes full circle. So um, my college roommate, Lauren, and I were working on my dad's campaign uh, the summer before our senior year of college. And we were driving uh, to a campaign event and it had rained and we were up in the mountain roads of Arkansas, very windy uh, and curvy with steep drop-offs. And mm -hmm. we started the hydroplane. I overcorrected and we spun out of control and went uh, off the edge of the cliff, tumbling down the side, only to be stopped by a tree that was growing out of the side of the cliff. Um, and that tree hit right on the roof of the car. If it had hit six inches in another direction, um, it probably would have completely crushed us and killed us on impact. Um, but if we hadn't hit that tree, we probably would have continued um, rolling down the side of that mountain. And um, I don't think it would have been a very good outcome on that, but we did. And we're hanging by this tree on the side of the cliff and honestly afraid to move, not sure that we can figure out how to get out of the car and back up to the road. Mm -hmm. And we hear these voices call down to us and it turned out to be two men who had seen us veer off the road and had turned around and come back. And they just happened to catch us out of the rear view mirror going off the side of the cliff. And they come back and we hear these voices call out. And as I like to call them, two angels in a pickup truck who <laughs> climbed down the side of the mountain and pulled us out of the car. Mm -hmm. To me, the best part of that story, other than living, of course, mm -hmm. is that that girl, Lauren, who was my college roommate, ended up marrying my brother. 
and is now my sister-in-law and also still one of my closest friends and the mom to my two nephews and a niece and another one on the way. Um, and our kids are the same ages and best friends. And now we get to do life together and watch our kids grow up together because we lived through that, um, that moment. Wow. You know, Sarah, one thing I've learned about just knowing you from a personal standpoint throughout the years, you don't pull any punches. You're, you look, you're from Arkansas. You don't, you don't mess around. You don't have time for any of the games. Uh, and that definitely comes through in the book for sure. Um, and you specifically talk about a very emotional time for you uh, with the birth of Scarlett. Uh, um, and again, as well with one of your other children as it relates to postpartum depression. And, and can you kind of walk me through that and uh, what that was like? Because that, that was, um, that was revealing and I, and, and bold of you to talk about, write about. You know, I, I think that there's certainly this stigma um, with having postpartum depression. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it and open up is so hopefully other people um, are able and feel comfortable finding somebody to talk to. Um, here you are, you're, you've gone through nine months of kind of a grueling process. I have friends that say they love being pregnant. I was never one of those people. <laughs> I love my kids. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but getting them into the world, it can be a little bit difficult. And so, right. um, you know, Scarlett finally arrives. I had a, a pretty, um, lengthy, labor process before she was 10 days late and she finally gets here and I expect that I should be the happiest person mm -hmm. on the planet and I just wasn't and I really struggled with why I couldn't find that happiness and that joy and here I was supposed to be the best day of my life and I just felt miserable mm -hmm. um, I cried all the time and I just couldn't figure out um, why I was have, struggling so much and I was ashamed that I was and I didn't want to talk about it because mm -hmm. I felt like there was everything in the world you know from social media to friends and family all so excited and happy to meet the new baby right. that you feel even worse because it's like why don't I feel that same joy mm -hmm. um, and so I really struggled that with that for probably six to eight weeks after Scarlett was born um, and, and, you know, gradually things got better and I got more comfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. And one night in, I knew that it had shifted and that, that all consuming love of a parent and that just total joy that you can't explain in words that I know you understand as a parent yourself. Mm -hmm. I had that moment one night late in Scarlett's nursery when I was holding her and I looked down and she gave me this little smile that was just pure perfection. And I felt that calmness and that peace that I'd been looking for. Um, and yeah. I thought it was important to share that again in hopes that the many people and many women that struggle with postpartum depression can find somebody to talk to. Um, my husband had a good friend from high school who didn't have that support system mm -hmm. and didn't seek help and ended up taking her own life. And I don't think that there's anything that could be more tragic um, than that. And so I, I wanted to share my story and let other women and moms know that they're not alone and that it is normal. And a lot of people struggle with that and they should get help. Yeah, they, for sure. For sure. Need it. Yeah, no, and for sure. So, so let me move on to another kind of depressing uh, topic, which would be the media. Uh, yeah, well, 
I, I got to tell you, Sarah, uh, so, so you talk about Jim Acosta. You got some pretty tough words for Jim Acosta. Um, uh, and I know Jim. I mean, look, and, and you know, off camera, it, it's a bit different. But then on camera, it becomes the show. Look, I mean, e even his colleagues will say that. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 but the point is, I feel like, and I want you to address this, that we're in the age, I call it the age of the correspondent. Like, we, are you a correspondent or are you a pundit? What are you exactly? And that it does a disservice to the reader, the viewer, and the person listening when you're taking your soapbox to work every day. And I'm wondering if you could just address that a little bit. You know, I, I think this is one of the, the big problems with journalism today is that there is no difference between the news and the opinion sections. Used right. to, it was so black and white, so clear. There was an opinion section in the newspaper. There are, uh, you know, opinion journalists on TV, and then there are the news people. And now it's, you don't know the difference. Right. And I think that's a dangerous road. One of the things I talk about is Sean Hannity doesn't pretend to be a hard news guy. He's a commentator. He's extremely good at it. It's the reason he's always number one. He's very talented. He doesn't pretend to be something he's not. On the left, Rachel Maddow is the same. She doesn't pretend to be a news person. She isn't. She's a commentator. Mm -hmm. um, and people that agree with her have a great space to go and listen to, to her share that same ideology. However, all of the people that sit in the briefing room are not supposed to be opinion makers. Mm -hmm. They are supposed to report information, hard facts, and let the reader determine what side they fall on the issue. I, I challenge people all the time, you'll be hard pressed to pick up any newspaper in America and find a story that you can't tell which side the reporter is on um, one way or the other. And it's yeah. very, you know, I think troubling for the industry. And it's the reason that so many people have stopped paying attention to the news, right. um, which can also be dangerous because then nobody has a trustworthy place to get real information. Um, and so often people like Jim Acosta, um, they make it about themselves. They aren't supposed to be the story. They're supposed to report the news and let uh, the viewer take from it what they want, but not to become the story. And so often I felt like Jim was so desperate to be the story that it was impossible for him to ever report it. I want to ask you on the press uh, situation, Sean Spicer, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, you go, you go through this because, I mean, you're kind of like, I don't say in the middle of all of this, but in a way you kind of, I got the sense that you were, you know, Sean's a friend and Scaramucci didn't really know, but you got to know a little bit. Uh, what was that like? Uh, you detail this in the book because the press had all these, you know, stories out there, but you try to set the record straight as to what was going on behind the scenes. That 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 seems to be part of President Trump. I mean, he, he's like, look, I made a decision and we're going this way instead of that way. And it, you have to kind of adjust to some of that. Yeah. And, and Sean is a, is a very good friend. And yeah. one of the things that I think a lot of people didn't understand is Sean was already sort of had made the decision on his own that he was a little bit ready to transition mm. more to a strategic and communications role um, and less on the press side. He and I had started having those conversations. Um, in fact, on one of the first foreign trips on the way home, the, the discussion about Scaramucci had come up and Sean told me if he comes in, I don't see that I, I could stay. I think he just knew that that was going to be oil and water and not a good combo. Um, and he had already kind of internally made that decision that if he came in in whatever capacity or role, 
um, Sean would probably uh, take a different path. And when that happened, you know, he stuck to it. I was actually a little surprised when he came in um, after that first meeting where the president told us that Scaramucci would be coming in. And Sean told me that he was headed to um, notify the president that he was resigning. Um, And it was a a very, a little bit of a tumultuous time. Um, Certainly, um, Scaramucci didn't make things easy by any stretch for any of us, but mm-hmm. um, just so much turnover. Sean was going out, Scaramucci was coming in, I was moving up, and then days later, Scaramucci's back out again, um, and I'm the I'm the only one left standing. <laughs> so um, it was a, a, a interesting time. Um, I still, you know, um, remain close with Sean and, and think he did a good job despite some very difficult yeah. circumstances. Um, and, um, you know, again, just a a very crazy, crazy moment in, in my life for sure. You have a lot of positive things about, uh, to say about the team, the White House communications team that you worked with. There was this one moment, it seemed like the the most frustrated, maybe even angry that you got when you walked out of a meeting about these leaks and you talk (laughs) about that, you were just like, I, I, I'm trying to picture it, Sarah, just I'm done. I'm out. What was that like? Because that's not necessarily, I mean, characteristic for, for you. I mean, but, but you had had enough clearly. I think the frustration had just gotten so high um, and it was a little bit twofold. One, I knew that the leaks were a total disservice to the president and frankly to the country. If the president doesn't feel like he can conduct business freely um, and talk openly with his own team without reading about it, you know, in the New York Times the next morning, that's a real problem. And I thought it was a a very big disservice to the president and frankly, to the country. And so that was very frustrating. And these were people I liked. These were my colleagues. I enjoyed being around them. Um, But the other part of it was it put all the burden on our team. We were constantly trying to clean up the leaks, clarify and give context to what actually happened. Um, And so it was very frustrating. Every night I would get home thinking, tonight will be the night that I get to have dinner with my family and tuck my kids in. And -hmm. instead, somebody would leak something and I would spend the next, you know, three or four hours at the office trying to clean up a story that was partly true, but not really because somebody took something out of context and they were driving their own agenda. And so there was just kind of a, a emerging frustration um, in the fact that I didn't think it was helpful to the team and certainly frustrating to our staff to, to try to clean up all the messes. And I just had enough. And so I, um, I let everybody know how I felt about it. Um, the, the comments you make about John Bolton in the book, I mean, you don't hold back there either. I mean, and it's not just you. Clearly, there was a whole feeling among White House folks there that, you know, he was kind of whatever you want to call it, in it for himself. He had his own detail. He had, I mean, what, what in the world was going on with John Bolton uh, exactly? Uh, he He's just one of those individuals, and I heard about this uh, before he got to the White House, and I think he has a bit of a reputation of not being someone who plays well with others. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks... He is the president, I think, in moments, and he felt like he was the smartest person in the room, and therefore, we should all be listening to him, and it was his agenda and his policy that should be moving forward. When there were moments I knew that what he wanted to do was contrary to what the president wanted. Um, On more than one occasion, he would come in to either me or somebody on my team and want us to release a statement from the White House, Um, and I would look at it and go, wait a minute, 
I was in a meeting with the president yesterday and that does not reflect what he was saying there. He's like, it's fine. Just put it out. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. I'm not pushing something out um, that I know to be wrong without it going through proper clearance and certainly without having a conversation with the president directly. Yeah. And he would get very frustrated in those moments and, and storm off. Um, and, and that was just an example of, I think, how he you know, saw himself. And the moment I talk about in the book and speaking for myself in that chapter in the UK, um, where he just kind of slights the team and Mick Mulvaney stepping up and just having had enough, lets him know <laughs> in no uncertain terms that that won't be tolerated again. And um, I was proud of Mick. And I think the whole team was, was, you know, cheering him on and very happy that he put him in his place. Yeah, for sure. Uh, as we as we kind of come to a conclusion here, Sarah, I, I want to ask you a little bit about this transition from the White House to family life, uh, from from the Oval Office to homeschooling, if you will, um, and now COVID, so it, it's even crazier. Um, what has this been like for you? And I'm assuming I would think you would miss the job to a degree somehow, some way. There's an adrenaline rush. I mean, you're at the seat of power. Not that it was about power for you, but it was about, you know, living history. Sorry, Hillary. Did I just say living history? But living history, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I loved my time at the White House. I loved working for President Trump. Um, and I loved my colleagues. I really enjoyed my two and a half years. That doesn't mean that there weren't difficult days and challenging moments that I probably could do without. But at the end of the day, I thought um, the work we did and the accomplishments of the president were certainly worth the sacrifices that we made. And I was mm -hmm. proud for the small part that I got to play in it. Um, transitioning out of the White House is um, a bit of a challenge. It's different. You go from being in the center of the universe to being on the outside and watching, um, which there are moments like, oh, what about, what if you did this or that? And so you want to be in the middle, but I'm loving being back home in Arkansas and getting to spend a lot more time with my family. Um, I get to still, you know, be involved without all of the pressure, which is nice. I yeah. continue to maintain a good relationship with the president and a lot of the staff. And um, so I'm very grateful for that and very thankful that I get this time to be home as we, you know, determine the, the next steps for our family. Yeah, I know that when you mentioned that uh, we were all heading back to Arkansas and the kids start to cheer and go wild, you, you knew you had made the right decision. I know you talked about that in the book. Uh, I love this book. I really did. I read every single word of it. Uh, I, I just thought it was great. Uh, I, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, moving forward and you know the the president um, is in a tough battle here, obviously with with Joe Biden. Um, and, and I guess here's how here's how I see it, Sarah. Let me know. I, everybody says, you know, what's the state of the race? And I've coined a new phrase. I call it, how is Joe doing on the basement index, the BBI, the Biden basement index? If he's if he's in the basement a lot, then they're feeling pretty secure. If he's out campaigning, yeah. then then he's ten on the base on the BBI scale. And we've seen him in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, many other places. Seems like he's getting out of the basement more now. Is that an indication that uh, they feel that they're a bit in, in in potential trouble here, the Biden campaign? I, I think there's no other way to look at it. Um, you know, they they hid him away and tucked him into that basement for the last several months. And as the polls started to tighten, as things start to get more serious, um, you're seeing him, like you said, do more campaign events. I think that is 
unquestionably because they know that the president um, is moving in and doing very well and growing in support. It's also such a huge contrast to look at the excitement and the enthusiasm for President Trump versus the lack of for Vice President Biden. I mean, there is mm -hmm. just nothing that seems to be motivating or rallying or in the Biden camp in the way that it is on the Trump campaign. I've grown up in politics. I have spent my entire adult life working in politics, and I have never seen the level of commitment and enthusiasm as there is that exists for President Trump for any other candidate. Yeah, speaking of President Trump, as, as you said in the book, he's going to continue to call you Madam Governor, you realize. <laughs> <laughs> he's never going to stop. You know he's never going to stop that. Probably not, but um, I've certainly been called a lot worse. That That's a, a, an honor that somebody would say that. And so um, much better than many of the other names that people have called me during my time <laughs> as the press secretary. I love it. Hey, listen, Sarah, as we wrap up my last question, you how hard was it not to hate? I mean, you address this in the book. You say, you know, God doesn't call us to hate. And I, I wonder if you can expand on that because I thought that was very powerful. I mean, you, you've look, we're all, we're all sinful and we're all human. Uh, and I'm sure you had a few maybe uh, thoughts of, hey, Jim Acosta or whoever, but uh, take your pick, I guess. But what was it like and how did God see you through it from a kind of a Christian witness standpoint? You know, I, I think that so many of the people that attacked me and attacked the president and my colleagues, you could see um, the anger and the hatred in who they were. And I never wanted to become like those people. And so mm -hmm. that was one of the kind of guiding moments for me is I never wanted to become like people that I didn't already like. Mm -hmm. And having faith and having that confidence of knowing I had a creator that loved me and had a unique plan for my life um, made all the difference in the world mm -hmm. and was what allowed me to, you know, keep going every single day, no matter how hard things got. I knew that at the end of the day, I had my faith, I had my family, and I had the freedom to live in the greatest country on the face of the planet. That's a pretty good life, and it makes it really hard when you focus on those things to be filled with the type of negativity and hatred that we so often see. And honestly, for the people out there that were so angry, I hope that they can find that same joy and that same purpose that I have and maybe, uh, you know, lighten up a little bit. By the way, in the book, I thought it was funny when, when uh, well, I say funny, but he called you a good Christian. Sarah, you wouldn't do anything bad to me. You're a good Christian. Uh, I love how he always talks about the evangelicals with the preposition the. The evangelicals, yeah. they love me. Well, can you talk to me about, uh, there's been a lot written on the other side of this, the liberals who say, oh, he's just using evangelicals as a prop and, you know, he doesn't really care about them. We've even seen some stories this week about, you know, maybe him saying disparaging things. What, 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 do, what do you say to folks that, uh, that come against Trump about how he's used evangelicals? I personally, obviously, have never seen that, but you have a, a much uh, more of a front row seat, obviously. Uh, look, I think it's incredibly simple. Simple. Look at what he's done. 
he has governed more conservatively mm -hmm. than any president in history. He's done more for the pro-life community. He's done more for religious freedom. He has empowered evangelicals and people of faith in a way that no president before him has. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, am very thankful that he has been willing to do that. And in so many cases, do that in the face of so much negativity, so many people attacking him. And I, I think that his record alone stands for where his heart lands and where it is, um, he's not perfect. Neither am I, neither are you. And that's the whole idea of Christianity is that none of us are perfect. But thankfully, because we have a savior, he wipes all that away. And I think that's the most amazing thing. And I am grateful that I get to be a recipient of God's grace and, you know, I, I hope other people can find that. And I'm thankful that we have a president that is willing to fight for people of faith on the daily basis. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, great book. Thank you so much for joining me. And say hello to, uh, as you say in the book, K1, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I read every every word. Uh, say hi to Brian, and th and again, you know, thank you. So I know he was a, was very instrumental, not just in keeping and holding down the fort, uh, but in in the process of writing the book and editing a lot of this too. So. Absolutely, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate one you reading the book, but also giving me a platform to share my story. And I hope that other people will follow in your footsteps and buy the book, but also read the book, and yeah. I think they'll really enjoy it. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, David. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Sarah Huckabee Sanders here on the Pod's Honest Truth. Hey, a few final uh, comments about Sarah Sanders. Look, I've known her for over a decade, actually close to 15 years now. We go back to the Mike Huckabee campaign of, what was it? My goodness, 2006, 2007, uh, when he ran for president. Uh, so, so I know Sarah pretty well. Uh, let, let me say a few things about her, first of all. Uh, she is tough. She's got a bless your heart mentality, which helped her with the press. But boy, don't do not mess with Sarah Sanders. And I think the press found that out for sure. And look, you have Jim Acosta and many of these other uh, media folks that come to the White House briefing room every day. Brian Karam is another one. Uh, but there, there are plenty of them out there. Uh, they come there and, with their soapbox in hand. And Sarah Sanders wasn't having any of it. And so she decided to basically uh, put them in their place and they could not deal with that. They didn't like that. And by the way, let me just say something about the media while we're on kind of Sarah Sanders. I guarantee you 
if you told the media that, oh, by the way, we're going to have one camera in the briefing room and that camera is going to be trained on Sarah Sanders or whoever the White House press secretary is, but there's not going to be a cutaway camera. Uh, there's not going to be this chance for you to opine and have your soapbox and be on camera for your whatever it is, World News Tonight or NBC Nightly News hit uh, in the evening. If that camera was taken away, I think you would see A, tons of complaints and B, a lot less grandstanding. But the bottom line is, is Sarah Sanders held herself, did, did herself a really, really good job while she was at the White House uh, during that time. And I will also say now you've got Kaylee McEnany, who, by the way, it's like Sarah Sanders and Kaylee McEnany can go on the road. I mean, they could be like the Thelma and Louise of White House press secretaries, literally um, both extremely impressive. Uh, Sarah does it more with a bless your heart attitude. Uh, and Kaylee uh, just comes in there and just basically hammers you right right from the, the, the get-go and doesn't let you get away with anything. Sarah didn't either, but it's a different style, and yet it is done extremely effectively in both cases. That, folks, is the Pod's Honest Truth. Until next time, America. Mm-hmm.